welcome to a special edition for the uh, Third Degree Burn crowd. This is going to be a review of a non-John Byrne issue or two. <gasps> yes, we're absolutely taking control. The interns have rioted, and we are taking control of this episode, at least, uh, for fill-in. Uh, we're going to talk about something that uh, uh, that appealed to us, that we thought that we'd uh, be interested in sharing with you, and we'll see if it, that it appeals to you as well. I'm Kirk Greenfield, one of the interns, and I'm joined by John Hyatt. Say hi, John. Hey, another intern. <laughs> and we're just here on a Sunday morning, just wanted to, to chat and review something. Uh, in fact, what we're going to be talking about is a two-part story in The Invaders from, what is this, 1977 or so? 1978. 78, okay. Uh, and this was a time period, I should give you a little background here. I was not buying or reading comics while I was in college, which was the late 70s. So I saw this showing up on the newsstand, and other than glancing at it, I didn't give the Invaders series any attention. I wasn't buying comics at all. I was concentrating on my uh, education. It wasn't until I got out of college that I came back into it because the uh, Days of Future Past storyline was showing up on the newsstand, and I had time and disposable cash on my hand, so I dipped my toe back into comics and then got sucked in. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I almost totally missed the burn run of, uh, of the X-Men. But my point is, as an older fan, I remember the first appearances of the Invaders as guest stars in Avengers uh, 70 or 71. 71. Uh, written by Roy Thomas, and that was eventually uh, reincorporated into one of the uh, Invaders uh, annuals, I guess, showing the story from the other point of view. Mm -hmm. Now, I was aware of the Invaders and the All-Winner Squad because they were being reprinted in, a, in kind of a scattershot method in a reprint title called Fantasy Masterpiece back in the 60s. So I was eh, vaguely aware of them. I may have run a, read a, a Human Torch story or a Toro story or something like that. And occasionally there would be some reference to those, that Golden Age in a Silver Age story. So I was peripherally aware that there had been a team that was fighting propaganda stories in the World War II, but I didn't, I didn't pursue it. I wasn't aware that they were going to get their own title. But if anybody's the right person for writing it, Roy Thomas has to be uh, the one because he, he's a history major. He's a literature major. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he has the interest and the passion. And he kind of developed them as an ongoing interest, as far as I know. And then uh, they guest starred in, what, Namor numbers, what, 9, 10, 11? Or 10, 11, 12, something like that, a three-part. Although, although they didn't really guest star. We've covered that in... Third-degree third burn story, uh, which John you introduced, and so rather than put words in your mouth to t describe your interest in Beck, I'm going to hand it off to you so you can explain why you are so drawn to these characters. So I was a kid at the time. <laughs> I was <laughs> started in the, uh, Invader started in 1975. It ran for 41 issues. It had a giant-sized edition, which introduced the series. And then the annual, which kind of revisited the, the Avenger story that you talked about earlier. And uh, I just, you know, I'm not a World War II buff, but I've always enjoyed those stories. My father, you know, grew up 
during that period, you know, the war was very real. So when the invaders came out, you know, it was it was an interesting aspect of of comic book storytelling. And you're right. Roy Thomas is the best person for this uh, because he loves history and he loves uh, comic book history. And then when he moved over to D.C., he, of course, did the All Star Squadron, revisited them and kind of did the a very similar thing where he took existing golden age characters and told stories in the time period with existing characters and new characters. So it was really cool. I love the all-star squadron as well. So this was just a really uh, interesting series for me. I, you know, I love this. I love the characters. Uh, It was great to see the human, the original human torch, the captain America and Submariner, not as a wacko crazy uh, well, I can't say wacko crazy, but, you know, he was determined to uh, protect his kingdom. <laughs> and sometimes he was a little little on the aggressive side or a lot on the aggressive side. But it was great to yeah. see him fighting uh, against Nazis and being a part of the, the dynamic of the team. I don't recall if I had a subscription to this or if I was just lucky enough to get it on the spinner racks all the time. But it was pretty able to get them and uh and, and if not there was a little uh, an old used bookstore that would get stacks of comics all the time and they would sit them on these shelves and i would go through and flip through them and i think probably pay a dime a piece for them back then wow and i'd come home with stacks of them and just put them in my own stacks and just collect them and read them and enjoy them it's it's so different now with the internet and many of the the uh, comic book shops going under the availability of issues if you you know if you wanted to see this you could call it up online there was no such thing when we were kids the only way you could get a back issue was one of those used book shops or the the, the grocer who had uh, a pile of used comics that he would buy from from people for pennies an issue and then sell for 10 cents a piece you know, those were the only, or trade with your friends or your, your relatives mm-hmm. when you would see them or stumble on one or maybe a yard sale in your small town. That yep. was it. That was there, it. There was no uh, great supply chain, although there, the ads were in the comic books. Some people were selling them, but, you know, the, the idea of, of buying a comic for a buck a piece, it was like that was outrageous. That <laughs> was like uh, the entire month's allowance you couldn't afford to do that so it was a different era and the approach to comics and the value of comics was different to his dying day my father always referred to comic books as funny books my dad very specific definition that that they were reprints from the sunday funnies the color sunday funnies from the the um you know the the sunday edition of the newspaper that were bound and they were very disposable. So, you know, he could not understand the appeal of them. He did not understand that there were continued stories or character development. Uh, it was just all disposable stuff from his youth. So he never valued them or, or understood them. My Another dad thing is the same way, Kirk. Uh, he was born in 28. So for mm-hmm. him, this was such a, a luxury thing that he had no idea that why, why I would keep reading comic books into my teens you know those, right. those were things that he read when he was eight if he was lucky enough to have a few pennies to buy them but he right. just didn't understand it my dad but he let me do it you know i'm really appreciate that he let me enjoy this creativity that's great 
Uh, you mentioned that your family had connections to the World War II era. My father was born in 23, so he's about five older, 1923. So he's about five years older than your father was. And as a result, uh, he got into World War II and did not serve overseas. Uh, but it, it very much, you know, it was their era and the, the war effort and the newsreels and the, uh, the, the promotional posters and, and that sort of thing was very real for that generation. Funny side uh, connection, we bought this house from a French couple who were uh, in their 70s, I believe, or just turning into their 70s, and they, were, they wanted to go home to the old country. It was clear it was the waning years of their life, and so they were going to leave. They spoke French fluently, and our local college here in this town uh, would send uh, French students, students of, of the language, to them so that they could speak uh, fluently and, and interact with somebody who it wasn't second nature for them to be able to, to you know, to speak fluently. I don't know yeah. how else to say it, smoothly. So when we bought this house, somebody knocked on the door and they asked for the French speaker. And I had to tell them, I'm sorry, they've sold the house. They're no longer here. Uh, you'll have to go back to the college and, and tell them. I stumbled on somebody else who, just as they left, sat down and recorded an oral history for them as a personal favor. So they spoke in a cassette recorder in French and described their life in occupied France during World War II when they had to billet a, uh, a Nazi soldier in their house. And they had, you know, weapons were forbidden. But the, the point of this story is they, he would tell how they had a gun that was hidden inside the tin of cocoa that was on the back shelf or, you know, on, in the pantry shelf of their kitchen. And the family knew that the gun was there, but the Nazi did not. And if it had been discovered, it would have been the end. They would all so, been shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, why they had one, you know, I can't imagine living in that environment myself, but you know, that's, that was the family's security, and that was the last measure. Not that they would have shot the soldier that, that was living with them because they came to, uh, to, to an understanding with, with him in some manner that they had peace in the house. But you know, no French farmers or no Frenchmen were to have weapons, uh, period. Well, they had one, <laughs> and their father knew where it was, and their mother knew where it was. Uh, and they never let the kids make their own cocoa or whatever the, the product was. Anyways, that's a side story that I had to share. Uh, it really opened my eyes. I wish I could have gotten a hold of that cassette tape. But I heard the story and thought, oh, man, I want to talk to that guy. So That would have been really interesting for sure. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, shall we give a little background about the Invader series itself so people can who aren't familiar with it can know. Uh, just basically, and then we'll move into the two issues we chose. Yep. All right. So, um, as Kirk said, the Invaders, as the Invaders, first appeared in Avengers 71, 1969. So, this was the first time they actually called the Invaders, um, according to um, the history. So, they did kind of do some get-togethers in the world and uh, and the original in the Golden Age in the 40s, but they were called the All Winter Squad then. When uh, Ray Thomas brought them in for the Avengers story when 
the Avengers went back in time and met them. And it was kind of interesting. Uh, I was looking at it. I haven't read Avengers 71 for ages, but uh, when they paired up which three modern Avengers got to fight which three back then, they pitted the vision against the human torch. Yes. So <laughs> uh, a couple of what, maybe two years later in our timeline. So during that's when we found out that the vision's body was actually the human torches, the original human torches uh, body that Ultron had reconstructed and used for the vision. So that I thought that was kind of cool to see that the vision was actually fighting himself. <laughs> Roy Thomas had that in mind from way back at that point. He had a long game, a long story arc in mind. And uh, when he left the Avengers series, it was probably three or four years down the road. But when he left, he uh, said to the, the next writer, hey, do you want to know where where this is going? And the guy said, sure, tell me. So he said, the, here's the big secret. Uh, you know, it, it's the human torch. We've never found what happened to him. Well, he's right in front of them and because blah, blah, blah. So they took it and ran with that, yeah. planted the seed. And so if you look back at all the clues, which as a kid I was buying every issue of the Avengers, it, <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't connect them. I didn't even realize that there was a mystery brewing here. But in hindsight, the significance of the vision appearing in 57, joining the Avengers in 58, and then by issue 71, fighting against his old self. I think there's actually a line in there where they say, this doesn't feel right. You know, I feel like we should be joining sides rather than fighting each other. Or <laughs> I'm an artificial construct as you are too, or something. But there's almost a throwaway line that in hindsight shows Thomas already knew, he already had it planned that this was going to pay off down the road, that there was this big secret. And thinking back on it now, it's so obvious. We had a, a, a um, destiny for Cap. We knew what happened to Namor. There was an explanation. The Human Torch showed up in an FF annual only because they were trying to screw over um, Carl Borges and, and keep the copyright. That's the only reason why that annual happened. And so we thought that was the end of the Human Torch story, and for all intents and purposes it was. But they never answer the question, where's the Human Torch been in all these years? And it wasn't a burning question, but it just seemed so obvious that they had two out of the three accounted for. Somebody should have tumbled to this. I, you know, as a kid, I should have tumbled to this saying, that's a dangling pot thread. Anyways, I've taken you off on a tangent. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It's really interesting stuff. For me, as a kid, the whole thing that the vision was really the, the original Human Torch was such a cool, interesting twist on the vision's character. I mm -hmm. was disappointed when it got undone later. I remember seeing it show up on the spinner racks uh, just before I got out of college and going, the secret origin of the vision and flipping through it. This is about 135 or so and, and looking and going, What? And putting the issue back on the spinner rack and saying, boy, I'm glad I'm out of comics. And about six <laughs> months later or so, I'm sucked back in. So I, I just couldn't believe it. It was like I was shaking my head going, man, are they desperate for ideas? It wasn't until later that I saw all the clues laid out, the fear of drowning, the uh, fear of uh, enclosed spaces, the things that would bug or make the vision go, what's the word I want, not, not crazy or, or not bug nuts. 
crazy by the things that would unnerve him. Yeah. Uh, it was there, including the Ant-Man's journey into the, uh, the body of the Vision to repair it. There's a couple of throwaway lines there saying, these look like World War II part. And a couple, you know, there, there's clearly been clues laid that there's something there. But they were just dangling plot threads. I never connected them at all as a kid. That, they, they were that, too far apart. The journey through um, the Vision's body by Atman, I think that was drawn by Neil Adams, right? Just yes. yes. <laughs> That's a beautiful story. It is. It is. It was the first double-sized one. It was, for all intents and purposes, the kickoff of the Kree-Skrull War. It was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I remember that vividly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was phenomenal. So um, the Invaders started as the original team-up was Captain America, Human Torch, and Submariner uh, back in Avengers 71. Then when they got their own book, they added uh, Toro and Bucky to the team. And fortunately, we don't have a sidekick for Submariner because he might have been, if he had been created back then, he might have had some goofy name like Tadpole or something. So thank Mm. goodness they didn't have one for him. (laughs) Namorita wasn't? Wasn't part of it back then? In the 40s? No. Okay. Um, I think Namorita didn't come in until later. I think she's more of a uh, Bronze Age creation. Okay. Um, But yeah, so there was no Submariner um, sidekick then. And, uh, you know, the first few issues started off typical, uh, I think, in the U.S., and then they ended up in England in the very early part of the series. So maybe issue five or six, they ended up over there, and then they met Lord Fallsworth his daughter Jacqueline, and his son Brian. And they kind of made friends with them, hung out with them. Uh, Jacqueline was a, she she did a very similar job that the queen did uh, when she was the princess, which was uh, drive ambulances and, and take care of wounded people. It was soon revealed that Lord Fallsworth was the World War One superhero known as Union Jack. That was a really great story. And that there was a World War One team <laughs> that had a bunch of uh, characters along with them that were, uh, I didn't write them down for this, sorry, but um, that was kind of interesting. Over the course of the series, Lord Fallsworth was injured and his son Brian took up the mantle of the Union Jack. Jacqueline gained speed powers from the blood transfusion from the Human Torch and became the, the speedster known as Spitfire. So as we're coming up to this story, uh, the invaders had gone back to the United States. They were called back um, by the president, and they fought a couple of ventures there. And then the invaders returned back to England and left Bucky and Toro in the United States with their new little team called the Kid Commandos. They found a couple of other kid superheroes, and uh, they were going to try to fight the war effort in the U.S. against the Nazi spies and all that. As the mm. Kid Commandos. Cool. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, so they uh, returned to England, reconnected with Spitfire and Union Jack. And one of their first adventures was fighting the Frankenstein monster or <laughs> as a Nazi. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that was the first two issues. And that was uh, that was pretty cool. So Frank Springer's last issue was issue 29 or issue 28, and Alan Kupperberg started the art chores as of issue 29 uh, with not Frank Springer. Um, Robbins. Frank, yeah, Frank Springer's joining here. Frank Robbins did the original artwork, but Frank Springer used to ink him. So Frank Springer is the inker here. 
so Frank Rob or uh, Robbins was uh, the artist up until issue 28, and then he left, and then uh, Alan Kupperberg started with 29. So Alan Kupperberg is the artist here, and it looks like Kupperberg was trying to maintain the style of Robbins, you know, not not a duplicate of Robbins' artwork, but he kind of kept the same style. So the theme kind of continued on. It, it wasn't a very big jarring artwork. It wasn't like going to Carmine Infantino or Steve Ditko art, which is very different than um, other people. So it wasn't a drastic change. It was a mm-hmm. nice little more change. So the issues we're going to cover is 32 and 33. Cover dated September and October of 78. They were on sale in June and July of 78 with a whopping cover price was 35 cents each so why did you pick these well the funny thing is uh going through a quarter box quarter bin or someplace at uh, uh comic-con i've been flipping through here and prominent on 32 is the character thor uh and also hitler and i've called it up in front of me 32 has hitler cheering or or uh, pronouncing you're too late invaders you must now face the wrath of the Third Reich's ultimate warrior, Thor, the god of thunder. And in the background, you see the various members of the invaders breaking through a, a brick wall. But front and center, you've got Thor, who looks really pissed and aggressive facing the reader. And it's dawned on me, wait a minute, how can they do this? Thor very clearly has a, a warrior's code and a, a morality about him. But on the other hand, I was aware that Hitler apparently had a fascination for the old myths and the legends, and that's the basis for the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark story, that he was a nut about mythology and and, um, mysticism. Mm -hmm. And there truly was a quest for all sorts of things that might be mystical or uh, supposedly of interest or to help the Nazi cause. That, that that's based in reality. So the concept that he might want or co-op, what's the word I want, co-op uh, Thor to be the champion of the Aryan race has a certain sense of a ring of truth. It's like, yeah, that sort of makes sense. So I was drawn. I wanted to see how did this happen? Uh, obviously, Thor only sticks around for, I thought, one issue. It turns out to be a two-issue uh, story. But, you know, I'm really intrigued. That was enough to draw me in to make me want to see this issue. You know, the, the Back to the Bins guys talk about, does it have uh, cover appeal? Does it make you want to pick it up and read it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly what this one did. It's like, how does this come about? How, how representative is this cover of what goes on inside? So... That's my interest. It's cool. And it's a Kirby cover, so... That helps. That's a, <laughs> that's a great cover as it is, you know, and inked by Joe Sinnott, um, who was pretty much a, known for his inks over on Fantastic Four. Uh, I, I see the KS underneath Hitler's uh, heel there, uh, now that you, you mention it. It's like, yeah, that that is also why it appealed to me. It, it rang those bells from my childhood when I was collecting the Fantastic Four. And Kirby Sinnott was the Fantastic Four for me. Um, so that's another reason why this makes sense. So the basic synopsis of this is the invaders are just coming off their battle with Frankenstein. And there's a, a thing in there about some new new types of tanks that were going to be introduced to some special tanks that were going to be able to be like the tanks of all tanks. Hitler is at like a, a performance of the the ring uh, the ring cycle by Wagner, 
And uh, he's all fascinated by it. Like you said, you know, and Hitler was definitely fascinated by Norse mythology. So he's just like, hmm, pondering, wow, this would be cool. I like Thor. Thor is awesome. And then somehow some of his scientists found some kind of interdimensional uh, a way to view into other dimensions. So they, they kind of scoped in on Asgard and find and seeing Thor battling giants and trolls and all that kind of stuff. And Hitler saying, yeah, I, I, I like this guy. How can we get him? It'd be great if he was on our side. We would be unstoppable then. So somehow they figured out a way to pull him out of that realm of Asgard into Berlin and through a series of convincing Thor, because this wasn't the Thor that we knew. This was mythology Thor. It is it is the Thor we knew, but it was before he came to America or it came to uh, the, the way that we know him. So they pulled him from, they snapped him out of time and out of place. And basically Hitler convinces Thor that they are being oppressed by these other folks. And that so I was able to convince him without giving them all the details exactly why they were being oppressed and being put on and trying to uh, battle. So I appealed to his warrior sense and his sense of justice of how to defend people. So that's how he got him on there, on his side. And then the main uh, goal was to kidnap and kill Joseph Stalin. They go through the first issue, and then next thing you know, the invaders are showing up at a train where Stalin is, and they're trying to protect, going to uh, kind of escort him. And then, boom, at the end of the episode or series uh, issue, there's Thor... Uh, calling the invaders villains and it's going to take out the enemy of the people, Joseph Stalin. That's the end of the first issue. Do you want to talk about that or go on to the second? Only uh, only comment that there's a, a shadowy assistant to the scientist with a bandaged face. Mm-hmm. And this, yep. is, this becomes significant. Um, anytime you have somebody with their face hidden in a comic book, clearly that's going to be a, a surprise or a reveal. Um, you can no prize and look at how they open the interdimensional portal. Once we reveal who that person is, it, it makes a little bit more sense, but it's very comic book, book plot. It happens because it has to happen because of the, to, to advance the plot. Um, but, um, that's probably enough when we do the big reveal, I think it's in the next issue. So let's, let's keep going on with, uh, 33. So 33 has... And I'm sure you probably love would love this too. It's a battle with Thor and Submariner um, right on the cover, and you you really enjoy the character Submariner. So this must have really tweaked your 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 interest. And again, sure. it's a Kirby cover, but it's inked by Dave Cockrum this time. So another great pairing, in my opinion, and a really impressive cover. What did you think of the cover? I've got it in front of me. I for some reason I hadn't seen this one until I'm looking at it online. Uh, I was not aware of this one, but yeah, I can see the Kirby in it. Great figure, uh, work, nice composition. Um, I like this. Harkens back to uh, to Avengers number seventy one. I like the blue background and the Human Torch flying up and over in front of that blue sky. Um, in some ways, it kind of reminds me of that same cover, although it's not. Um, I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they continue on. Of course, they battle Thor, and eventually um, Thor brings down Rain, and it's a lot. It's a big battle. So Mariner escapes with uh, Joseph Stalin to protect him, and then Thor flies off, and then the the invaders, of course, try to figure out what's going on. We get a scene with Hitler, call, you know, of course. <laughs> 
Hitler's like all pissed off at Thor because Thor failed. Don't cough. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so funny the way that they portray the character of Hitler uh, in this. It's great. And then um, the the doctor that's the scientist that's that's helping that's creating all this with the assistance of this bandaged negative man looking assistant he's having second thoughts he's like man this is this is wrong i can't do this tries to back out of it but hitler's like no you're going to do this or you're dead well the guy dies of a heart attack anyway and then um so conflicted more than likely all the stress and everything so the assistant's like Nope, you are you are batshit crazy, and uh, you're going to interfere with my plans for what I want to do. So I'm going to sabotage you. So he kind of opens up a communication, flips on the microphone that is somehow linked to Thor's hammer. And while uh, Hitler is on one of his little tirades about how he's going to conquer the world and how he duped this stupid god of thunder into helping him, Thor hears all this and realizes, oh my gosh, I've been tricked into this. So he converts to his sense of justice, of course, uh, and his wanting the right fight for the right thing. He, he goes and joins the invaders, and or he stops uh, fighting them. And then uh, we, we switch to Hitler and the shadowy figure. And Hitler's like, bring in the trolls, bring in everything. You know, I want to, we, this is how we're going to win the war. And uh, assistance, like, no way. He sabotages everything. And then you want to do the reveal, Kirk? Reveals well, he, itself as? He sabotages the operation. It explodes. And in the wreckage, Hitler survives and says, uh, you know, why would you do this? How can. How, you know, how can you do this? And, and the, the assistant chose his true colors. Earlier, he'd had a line saying, well, I'm no doctor, but... And so he says, Nazi dog, just be glad I didn't kill you myself. Um, you know, I agreed to help Dr. Olson only because for some time I've been trying to contact my dead mother in the spirit world. My mother, incidentally, was born gypsy, uh, as I was. So you've got all the elements here that, that uh, Thomas has set up and sprinkled in here for you that obviously this person is a scientist. They can open up time portals. Uh, they have a bandaged face. Yeah. Uh, their mother was a gypsy. Did I say that already? And yeah. doesn't have any, any great love for the Nazis. So clearly this is Victor Von Doom. Uh-huh. However, where it fits in Von Doom's char- uh, timeline, character development, is of question. Some people think that this falls between the time that he was kicked out of college after the explosion that scarred his face and before he made it to the Himalayas. Other people say, no, he's got a time machine. That's how he's opening up the uh, the portal. So this has to be doomed simply without his armor. Well, it's a conundrum and one that we're not going to solve today. But uh, yeah. this is supposed to be clearly Victor Von Doom, who sabotaged, who's first helped and then sabotaged uh, Hitler. So, uh, and then he he vanishes. He walks off stage, and he's never identified by name that I recall that I can see. Yeah. So that that was that was a what? Oh my gosh! How cool! Because back then, getting these little tidbits of bits and pieces from the past of our characters was always kind of cool. So this little bit of a backstory. And Roy Thomas was king at doing this kind of stuff in this series and All Star Squadron. So uh, it was really great to pull this in. It probably was a little out of sync with... BFF chronology. With, 
with FF chronology because this would make Doom probably 30 years old or so in 1943, 42, 43 ish. Or even if he was 25, it would still be by the time 1963 rolled around when the FF hit and Doom was their number one, he would have been like in his 50s by then. So eh, it's a little, little off, but eh, we didn't care back then. Sliding time scale, it was just a cool reveal. Uh, the book rounds off with Thor saying, oh, yeah, you know, um, I'm really sorry. Um, Union Jack had disguised himself as Stalin to as a, act as a decoy with one of those very cool Mission Impossible masks that no one can tell the difference once it's on. He got zapped by Thor's lightning, to, or kill lightning him, yeah. to kill him. And so he was laying there dying. And Thor felt so bad that he pulled the mystic lightning out and restored Brian's visage back to life. And then as a result, Brian ends up, Union Jack ends up with a electric bolt power. Terrific. So he's got a new power as a result of this. Yep. And that ends. And then the next issue is continuing on with a plot thread from way back in the teens. The Mighty Destroyer? Yeah, the Destroyer. Not necessarily a plot thread, but it picks up a character that we had seen over uh, er in earlier issues, so uh, which was pretty cool. And that's well, it. For a little two-issue arc here, that's pretty cool. I've got to tell you, the art doesn't do anything for me. I uh, <laughs> just... This is one of the reasons why I didn't 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 embrace this series, didn't care for it. Uh, it just I I don't want to dump on it too badly, but hey, Kirby and Sinat is where I live and burn. Uh, Springer and and Robbins I'm or, or Copperbang how I don't know what the mix was, but I didn't do anything for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can see in a sort of a stylized. Um, you know, war effort, poster, you know, very simplistic stories. Okay, I can see that appeal, but, man, anytime I've seen any of those artists show up in cap or anything else, it's like, put it back on the rack. It's just, it ain't my cup of tea. So. Yeah, you know, I, I know it's very... It's very stylized, and it's and, and it really is true, or it really seems like people either like Frank Love Roberts or, hate or they hate him. Yep. And there's very few. I don't actually. I haven't even seen anyone in any of the groups say, um, "Yeah, it's okay. I don't care one way or the other." It's either been very much hate, 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 or love, love, love. And I'm I'm in the. I really like his artwork, and in this series, I think it works really well. And I've just. I picked up the essentials, the black and white Captain America ones, and was looking at his artwork there, and I was like, oh, okay, interesting. So I, I like his artwork well enough. It's interesting. Look at the last page, the last panel in this second issue. In other words, it's the last panel in 33, issue 33. We have Cap on the left with a Russian flag behind him, and in the bottom right we have Namor. And look at those ears. Flat <laughs> top head, yes, but the ears are not just pointed. They're flared. They're right? exaggerated, so yeah. I, I mean, that that doesn't fit with any of the depictions earlier in the book, as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, you know, hmm, okay. <laughs> they say, whatever you're reading when you're turn 10, 10, 11, 12, right in that sweet spot where kids are drawn to comics, that's the style of art that you will always value. Those are the artists that always lives in your memory as the the golden age the high point of your comics reading experience and i have to admit i think that's true for me too because you know i came into uh 
Kirby and, and Sinette on the Fantastic Four, and that's that's part of my childhood. You mm-hmm. were reading The Invaders, and that's your childhood, and that's what appeals to you. Other people, you know, it was when Byrne was on the X-Men. So I think there's a lot of truth to that. I really do. It's, it doesn't make any difference what the artwork looked like. It's what was there, what you were reading at that time in your life. I, I agree with you. I think that era of when comics were very important to you, creativity and the way you can escape into reading something fun and dynamic and lose yourself, in it. lose yourself, whether it was scientifically possible or correct, didn't matter. <laughs> right. Just had to follow the storyline. It had to make some sort of internal logic, consistent sense. So you weren't pulled out of the story and go, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So was, the only people was... who say that's all right, that would be Andrew Leyland. That's all he ever seems to say. It's all right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so it was, it was fun to revisit these. Thanks for bringing it on. You know, the you know Kupperberg, I think, did, is is a good composer. I mean, he is a good storyteller in the way that he composed the panels and drew the story through. I think. What did you think of just not necessarily his artwork style, but his composition of story? Well, I noticed in a couple of spots um, when you were talking about Hitler on a rant. I was flipping through the pages, and there's one scene where he's standing in front of the newsreel footage, trying to convince Thor. And I thought, that's that's an interesting layout because you've got the black and white images of the invaders behind him, and he's got his arms raised, and then Thor's in full color in front of him. And I thought, there's something here. You know, they, they, there's a layout and a thought and an intent about how this has been positioned that works for me. So, uh, you know, I think... I'm not sure that it required two sto- two issues to tell, although we don't have a one-issue version, so I don't know if it would fit if it was all packed into one. But, uh, you know, it was a way to get Thor there. It was a way mm-hmm. to get Thor co-opted and then straighten him out and have him depart. It was a way to give Union Jack an additional power because he was lamenting that he didn't bring anything to the table. Apparently mm-hmm. that was this ongoing subplot. You know, it it hits all the marks that it's supposed to, that it needed to, to have a nice, self-contained World War II story. So, you know, I don't know about incorporating so many historical figures like Hitler and Stalin. Uh, you know, that gets a little bit trite for me, but nonetheless, it's it's good. One of the reasons why I say this is just yesterday I was looking on the History Channel, and there was a series called World the World Wars, and they're up to the point where... Hitler and Stalin have made a pact to divide Poland. And then later on, Hitler's going to open up the Second Front and attack the Soviet Union, which most historians, I believe, say that was uh, his major blunder. That mm-hmm. was stupid and never should have happened. And he knew better, but he did it anyway. And so they point to Hitler's mindset and ego and the fact that maybe he was losing <laughs> grasp on reality. Anyway, so I just saw that yesterday. And so this was very fresh in my mind. So to see Stalin be the victim and then be rescued by the invaders, it's a complicated real-world history where he's, at one point, he's an ally, and then he becomes our opponent. So, you know, I'm okay with it. It's a comic book story. So it's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know you seemed a little disappointed after we talked about after you first read it. I think you had higher expectations for the story, didn't you, based just looking at the cover and thinking, oh, but it didn't seem like it let you down too much. No, um, I'm not sure that I would have liked it when it came out. But, 
you know, as a as an artifact, I appreciate it and I enjoyed looking at it. Um, and that's about as far as I want to take it. I'm not looking for a mint copy of it. I'm not going to have it framed. Um, what was I going to say? It, there was something that was just on the tip of my tongue. Oh, yes, the, the Thor that's presented is the Thor of mythology. It's before he has the morality and the hubris of Don Blake added. Mm-hmm. So he is more violent. He is more aggressive. He is more black and white, right or wrong. You, you don't have thought balloons for him, so you can't get into his internal thought process. He's more a force of nature, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, no pun intended. So, you know, he sure looks like our uh, Silver Age Thor, but he acts more like a Golden Age Thor. So it works for me. The story's internal logic works. I just think there maybe should have been more made out of the Dr. Doom shadowy figure element, although I guess it was Thomas's intent to bury that as an Easter egg for those that, that wanted uh, something else or wanted it tied into Marvel Silver Age a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I no prize the explanation of how did they open the, to- the, the dimensional portal into, well, that's Dr. Doom. Yeah, and and his time machine—that's what this is. At least and, that's how I explain it, and that's how he may have gotten here, jumping time periods to come to this point. I don't know. It's never dealt with. This making you know, it all. That's a good point. Maybe he jumped back in time to try to help develop the technology with this particular scientist to mm-hmm. find out some some trick. Is you know, a lot of times, a lot of people have different pieces, and when you start getting the pieces from this person, this person, this person, you can complete the thing. So, yeah, he might have just jumped back in time, and and maybe this was the regular the doom that we know, and he just bandaged himself up. He's not in his armor because that would be too obvious. That's that's an an interesting twist there. If his goal was to talk to or rescue his mother, who's trapped in the neither world or the other world, that's Mm -hmm. great motivation. And that would explain why he would want to consult with that scientist, that Nazi scientist, about how Mm -hmm. do we do this? How can that be done? But when that guy dies, when that other scientist croaks, his reason for being there, his interest is over. Like the switch has been thrown. Yeah. So I I can see that plot and that motivation. Uh, And then he sabotages Hitler in in more than one way. The the invaders never know of his role or his help at all. You see that? They get revisited or touched on at some point in some future story. Yeah, I like the the last panel we see of Doom. It's a very small one there. And he's just walking away while the soldiers are running to the lab. He's just calmly walking away. That's a yeah. really, it's, it's a really interesting compos- uh, panel there. That's cool. Yeah, striding off, stage yeah. left, not to be seen again. And, and like you said, I, 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 I'm glad we talked about this because that's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought before. I just kind of thought, oh, this was just saying that this was really in Doom's chronology of life, that this is where he was. But no, maybe he actually went back from the future. I don't know where I got this from. Maybe it was a review of this issue. I can't recall. It's not my original thought. Somebody else, uh, maybe it was in the uh, the letters pages, about three issues forward, which would be about the time that they would print the fan feedback mm-hmm. for this. I can't remember where it came from, but it's not my original thought. That's uh, cool. I think initially, though, it was intended to be doomed between the college accident and adopting his armor. I think that's where, where Thomas had intended to position mm-hmm. it, but, you know. 
fans second-guessing the author, trying to no-prize-away conundrums. And good stuff. Well, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I've got for this uh, this episode. Do you have anything else to add, or shall we wrap it up? Let's wrap it up. Nothing more to add, really. Just enjoyable. Okay. Next well, time. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what will be next time. In fact, we're not even sure when this is going to air. But uh, thanks for coming along with us. If you enjoy The Invaders, we'd like to know about it. Uh, if you have additional thoughts on how this story is structured or the characters, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Always you can write to us and any of the Third Degree Burn folks by going to gotta get burned at gmail.com or go on to Facebook and look for the Third Degree Burn page. Is there one for for cocktails and comics? No, it's all going through Third Degree Burn page. Okay, so uh, by all means, drop us a line if you have a nomination for something else you'd like us to review. I don't know what we're going to call this feature, you know, Silver Age Memories. I I have no idea. We haven't even talked about doing anything on an ongoing basis, but uh, this was just a lot of fun. We had it down downtime here in the recording schedule so we just wanted to, to strike while the interest was there so uh that's all i've got i want to thank john hyatt for coming along and giving all that great background on the invaders i really appreciate it because i didn't know that stuff and i'm kirk greenfield and i'm john hyatt thanks for joining us and thanks for bringing this up kirk a lot of fun mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it all right. So, it's all forgotten now, and let's hear no more about it. So that's two egg mayonnaise, a prawn gerbils, a Herman Goring, and four colded salads. Oh, wait a moment, I got a bit confused here. Sorry, I got a bit confused because everyone keeps mentioning the war, so could you... What's the matter? It's all right. Is there something wrong? Will you stop talking about the war? Me? You started it? We did not start it. Yes, you did. You invaded Poland. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.